get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions. We'll dive into education issues and we'll highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Seydorf. Thank you, Rural Scoop listeners, for joining us again today for part of a series of interviews that we're doing with Teachers of the Year from across the country. We're very excited to have the opportunity not only to brag about these fine educators and all of the things that they're doing, but really to highlight the best practices that they're putting in place in their rural school communities. I'd like to introduce my co-host for this series, Mr. Ty White. Ty is the 21-22 ARSA Teacher of the Year here in Arizona. And this year, he was awarded the National Teacher of the Year for the NREA, the National Rural Education Association. And he was also recently awarded the Teacher of the Year for Arizona's Arizona Educational Foundation. So, Ty, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi. So, yeah, I am a veteran science teacher in Arizona. I've taught for gosh, 12 years in Wilcox, so 17 years overall. I teach, I'm highly qualified to teach math, chemistry, and biology, and I love jumping in at all levels. I've gotten to do a little bit of mentoring with middle school teachers, but my passion is with high school kids. They're a great group to work with. I'm excited because now I get to introduce Laura Belize, who's joining us today from Montana, where she was the 2022 Montana State Rural Teacher of the Year. And I have heard so many stories about what she does in the classroom that I really want to key up the audience for this. Like I'm, I've heard a little bit about the Buffalo Project and she gets to go to Yellowstone. <laughs> Man, talk about a place to get to take kids. That's just a wonderful project. And so Laura, why don't you tell the audience about yourself a little bit? Uh, definitely. Thank you for having me, Melissa and Ty. It's uh, great to connect with you. I am in an extremely remote area of Montana. It's uh, just four miles from the northeast entrance to Yellowstone National Park. It's a year-round residence of about 70 people. And so it's a one-room school that I teach at. It's K through 8. Enrollment can vary. However, I did not start as an educator. I originally am from San Diego, California, and grew up near the ocean. Love the mountains always, so always wanted to get to the mountains and had a landscaping business for many years uh, in San Diego. It was um, landscape design and construction business that did well. That that wasn't my end. I did not want to stay in San Diego and wanted to do other things. So when I had an opportunity to move to Montana, I did. And then past took me different places. I did some traveling and ended up going back uh, to school to get my teaching degree um, in 2014. Obtained my teaching degree in 2018 and uh, have been at rural schools since then for the last five and a half years. So that kind of sets us up actually for that first question. Because uh, now I've got to ask where you got your teaching degree from and what was that pathway that you decided you were going to become an educator. It feels like there's so many people saying they've got to run from this profession that's changing so fast, and you're headed the other direction, right into the fire. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I was a very untraditional path to becoming an educator. Actually, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I was going to be a teacher, I I definitely would have laughed. And if you had told me I was going to become Montana Rural Teacher of the Year, that would have made me laugh even harder. Uh, children and education were just like not part of my life. It was uh, when I was traveling, I had a uh, uh, extensive kind of adventure traveling and volunteering where I went to different countries. And I had a cousin in Calgary, an older cousin who knew a Buddhist Lama who had started a school in the very remote region of the Tibetan Plateau. And she said, hey, if you wanted to go there, I could probably get you to, to go to this school. And I said, sure, why not? And so I made my way to Beijing and then flew to Xinying, which is the very like northwest corner of the Tibetan Plateau and took a 27-hour bus ride uh, to uh, Zadu, where the school was located. And I was terrified when they told me I'd be teaching. I had no idea what to do. And nobody spoke any English. And I was supposed to teach these students English. They were Tibetan. The school was there to... Um, they wouldn't have been able, the children, to go to school if this school didn't exist because it also boarded them. The parents lived too far away for uh, students to get to school and return every day. So they lived at the school. There were about 200 of uh, anywhere from six years old to 18 years old. And they made use of me. I taught all day long. I was exhausted and frazzled, but I loved it. And when I returned after three months of being there, I enrolled at the University of Montana Western in Dillon, Montana, small school, um, great school for educators. Uh, and I obtained my teaching license in January of 2018. Took a mid-year position and been rocking ever since. It's been a good fit. <laughs> this so, is a so I've got to I've got to ask. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I've got to ask you about that story, right? So like in yeah, Arizona, right. you get your, your credentialing at different levels. Are you in secondary or are you credentialed in elementary? Right. And so Montana. That? Yep. So Montana is a K through eight elementary. Uh, and then I got an, a literacy endorsement as well on top of that, which is K through 12th grade, which was the best tool I could have ever gotten for I'd say any educator, but especially as remote as I am and being everything, I need those literacy um, skills to pull out. So I went back to school to get my teaching degree when I was in my late 30s. And then my professors connected with them well. Uh, they were more like colleagues. And I was completely focused on school at that time. And dug into everything. They tried to steer me towards getting an English language arts high school degree for teaching. However, that's not what I wanted. I want to see the full picture of the child. And I, even though the youngest ones actually uh, scare me the most or used to scare me the most as far as teaching, I thought I would do middle school. And that's what I actually when I got my teaching degree in January of 2018, I took a mid-year position teaching seventh and eighth grade science and social studies in the northern northwestern part of Montana. And that was great 
uh, I love the middle schoolers and I could easily see why you love high school or students as well. They're, they're all fantastic. Uh, and yeah, I love the middle schoolers. However, I was stuck only teaching science and social studies and I wanted to teach everything. I was only seeing students in those subjects. And even though I had a small class sizes at the school where I taught it, it wasn't, I didn't know what they were like in their other courses. And I, so I couldn't combine that all to make a complete package of the child. And I get to do that here where I am. And uh, not only just one year, but multiple years. I've been teaching at Cook City School for five years, and I have an eighth grader graduating who's been with me since I first started. For five years, I've seen her grow. And man, I mean, so she can't get away with anything because <laughs> I know her too well, right? And she knows me too. And we just have a great, you know, we know when we're off. I know when she's off. I know when she's on. I know how to, I just know, you just know them. Um, so elementary school has been fantastic. The little ones, oh my gosh, there's no way I'd go back. I would take any grade between K through 12th for sure. Um, but those little ones, their minds are sponges. You have children, a tie. And so I, they're, they're incredible. And oh, yeah. I have to, I have to teach uh, combined, you know, lessons uh, at times in the afternoon to meet science and social studies and art and engineering. So the only way I can do it is a whole group lesson. And those kindergarten, first, second graders, they remember the vocabulary, the domain specific vocab vocabulary better than the older students because they just grasp onto, it's just like learning a new language, those abstract words. It's amazing. But I love it when, you know, I ask them to, you know, remember what an atlatl is and the little ones, you know, are explain it clearly. And the other ones, the older students look at me like I've never, you know, speaking a foreign <laughs> language or something to them. So, Larry, you've talked a little bit about what attracts you to the rural setting for schooling. Have you ever considered not being rural? I mean, what's the advantage that you have gone with as far as why did you choose a rural setting? Sure. I initially, the number one is I, it's where I want to live. I want to live in a rural setting. And so I know if I'm happy where I'm living, it's going to make me happier at work uh, as well. As a rural educator, like I, I mentioned, I get to see the whole picture of the child, especially in this community where you can't go unnoticed. And I know what the students are doing on the weekend. I see them. They're literally my neighbors. Um, <laughs> my, the playground, the playground is in my yard of the teacherage where the housing that's provided for me. Uh, I get to, I know what their families do. I see them. We interact. I know the community members. I know who families are involved with. So again, it's that whole picture and that way I know how to serve that child best or maybe why they're off. There was a birthday party that and, you know, big barbecue or something. And yeah, you just, you know. It's an advantage for sure. Absolutely. So this has been where you, since you got your teaching credentials, you've taught in Cook City this whole time? Uh, for six months, I was in a, a different, uh, in the northwest corner. So a different school, still rural. Uh, it was K through eight with about 200, 250 students. So um, otherwise, I know I knew I didn't want to stay there. It was still a little bit too too big of it. Not The school was great. It was great to have teachers to lean on and actually interact. 
in a full school setting. However, it wasn't a location uh, where I wanted to live. I wanted to get back to more remote community where I can backpack and ski right out of my doorstep, like my back door, my front door and, um, and take advantage of just, uh, knowing this, uh, having those students, uh, multiple years. When I first moved to Montana in 2004, I was in a, another rural community. I wasn't an educator at that time, but I got to see how those one and two room classrooms operated. I went skiing with them, jumped on the bus, went down to the local ski hill and it was great. Um, and so in that type of community as well, where you, you know, everybody, it, it makes a difference and can lean on each other. So, Laura, teaching in a rural setting can often bring some unique challenges and barriers, um, issues. And right. so, you know, you have to be the innovator from your classroom. <laughs> what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in your rural education setting and how have you overcome them? Yes, uh, absolutely. There are challenges. There's daily challenges from everything from frozen water lines uh, for the last two winters where I'm hauling water from the teacherage to the school every recess so we can flush at least to flush the toilets. From then the boiler system not working because it runs off of water having go through it. So uh, um, from just no professional services where we are, we're, we're literally when it's six months of the year, the road isn't plowed to the east of us. And so we have to go west through the park. And then to get to a town, is it's a two and a half to three hour drive one way to get to a, a normal grocery store, to a doctor, to a dentist, to any services. That's where my superintendent is. Um, and then for six months of the year, we have an hour and a half drive to get to a town of about 8,000 that does have you know, Walmart and other grocery stores and, you know, a vet and things like that, but, uh, and a hospital. However, so you, you lean on the community members. It's always first go to the community, even though there's nobody here who's like a plumber or a, a official electrician, everybody has tools of the trade and you know who to ask for when a, the, uh, tree fell on the school a couple years ago. Luckily, my my car, uh, lucky for, luckily for the school, for us, <laughs> school could go on because my car stopped the tree first, but it still landed on the on the roof and then was, you know, hanging out there. And uh, gosh, just our local flathead electric um, person who's up here to help, you know, keep our electricity running because we're so remote. He jumped on it, came with his bucket truck and cut it up with some other local guy. And then, you know, I took care of the rest later. And, uh, but those challenges are, are pretty minor. Uh, I, the biggest challenge by far has been the fluctuation in enrollment mm -hmm. and it just a student or two, depending on what grade level they're coming into, into and what I'm already teaching and those students needs can just completely shift the whole the whole structure of the classroom and what I'm able to do. So I had a couple of years ago, I, I, I received three new students and then a fourth the following year for that was a sibling. And 
my, I had five students that went to nine and it was, you know, that's like, woo, like nine students, but it's, I was teaching seven different grade levels mm-hmm. and I had three students with, with serious um, learning disabilities and one with a 504 as well. So half of my students basically had learning disabilities. And so where do you get, you know, we scrambled. I about went out of my mind, you know, how am I mm-hmm. going to do this? Uh, luckily I have an amazing ability to, to, change the schedule and shift and, and see things as, you know, where I can combine, but still there's certain things you have to do, especially if a student has an, you know, IEP and individual education, you know, plan, you have to meet those that time. So, so uh, where do you get somebody else? There's not funding to have hire another teacher. Plus where are they going to live and where would they come from? Uh, who's going to move here, it's a, it's a unique fit. Um, And then where do you even get extra help? It took six months to find a a paraprofessional. And it ended up being that it was a grandmother who moved to town. She had never worked in a school. She had never worked with children who have needs. And Mm. so who's going to train her? I have to train her. You know, I'm her mentor. And so you know, it worked for, and the students still met their goals and exceeded them because we are so small and we can focus. And I know every movement of them throughout the day, but goodness, I mean, how could you sustain that? And, right. Um, it, yeah, it's not, it's not the best. So the biggest challenge has been having, adjusting to fluctuating enrollment and then, you know, what if we had been able to hire a teacher and then those, I had two families leave before Thanksgiving this year. It brought me back down to only teaching four grade levels and I didn't need the paraprofessional anymore. I could handle the student's, you know, needs. And so if we had hired a teacher, we would have had to retain that teacher due mm-hmm. to contracts, but we wouldn't have necessarily needed, you know, could always use another teacher, but um, Yeah. So that's the diff- most difficult challenge for sure. Sounds like um, it just kind of depends month over month, year to year, what you're going to get as far as enrollment. Absolutely. It had stayed consistent for a long time, around five students. And then it depends on a student where I uh, last year gained another seventh grader, grader. And it didn't matter because I was already teaching all of that. And there mm-hmm. wasn't any extra that came along. Um, it, so it just depends how it fits in. Otherwise, if it's a new grade level or if it's younger, you know, we had to shift things entirely. Now, they don't all fit in the van to go on field trips then. So we had to make some <laughs> grade level changes of who could attend field trips. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's all right. It's, it made me a better teacher for sure for just that time that I had. That was crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I don't even know where to start with all of that. My my first comment is, um, well, folks, I think we found our most rural teacher so far <laughs> to date, right? I believe so. Um, but you also said something, and I want to go back and prop you up a bit, because don't ever say that's only nine kids when that's every single subject across yep. seven or eight different grades. I yep. mean, that's 
It's a lot. That's 40 plus preps. That's a lot. No. And I know, and I say only nine because, you know, you have classrooms full and I know other teachers are full and you have multiple different courses that you're teaching, Ty, that you're responsible for. In those larger schools, you have a shuffle of students that pass through your door for, you know, if you're an English language but, um, arts teacher. Yeah, but still but it's not like, teaching yeah. every subject and every I, right. I, like, that's I, I get super that. impressive. That's it's amazing. A, <laughs> thank you. It's yeah, it's a that I people ask me how I do it and I don't um yeah, it happens. It's a lot of prep for okay. sure. <laughs> well, it it's kind of the the framework too for the next question and I you may have already answered it if there's not much to add to this. But I mean I don't think it is because it's one thing to say that you're preparing content for all those different levels and those different content areas. I'm making sure, like, let me know if I drop something off here. You're taking care of the needs of special ed students who have individualized education plans and students with 504 plans. Um, I would wager you're probably driving the bus. I know if you're going on field trips, you're probably driving the bus. I mean, gosh, yes. a one-room schoolhouse means you're the administrator on top of it. There's no principal to send exactly. kids to. Good right. Lord, what aren't you doing? <laughs> uh, so I am doing, it's, I'm I'm the janitor. I clean the toilets. I vacuum. I take out the trash. And not only do I take out the trash, I drive it to our local transfer station because we live where grizzly bears and black bears live. And it has, you know, it's an enclosed transfer station. Uh, yes, the van, we, I drive it. I, full of kids through crazy weather, uh, school PE. We went to ski PE in February. It was super negative temperatures, but they know Cook City is super tough. So they allowed us to continue our ski dates. Uh, but the van battery went dead. I went to the store after skiing that day, after getting the van jumped a couple of times along the way. And then, you know, this, it was negative 25 outside. Nobody was allowed to help me. So, but who installed the battery? I do. I installed the battery. Um, I'm the connector of everything with the school. Uh, I do not, I'm not the, there, we have a special education co-op through Park County, Montana. And so amazing resource. So a student needs speech or behavioral or um, something specific. It's through Zoom, but it's remote. You know, there's several hours from us. The students might not even ever meet the teacher in person um, throughout their career, but they are a fantastic resource and they manage the special education. But obviously I'm actually doing the, you know, the the in school work like I'm the person if it's literacy I'm the person services exactly um gosh all the invoicing if there's budgeting spending ideas writing grants um organizing field trips purchasing materials everything from toilet scrubbers to microscopes to textbooks seeking out new curriculum then buying it and then figuring out how to use it <laughs> on my own right there's nobody to like teach you how to use it uh yeah uh receptionist i have to like stop instruction and answer the phone um yeah uh behavior programs i don't know yeah it's oh shoveling snow i forgot about that that's just part of my life <laughs> yeah it's the snowiest place in montana and i shovel it for it's snow on the ground here for seven of the nine school months uh and oh. it's a lot yeah so I guess wrong mentally and physically. 
Oh. It's actually All my I least favorite. Is when I complain about paperwork, <laughs> the technology is. That's my when least favorite. I complain favorite. about oh, having to do paperwork. That's funny. See, my least favorite is the paperwork. And when I complain about <laughs> paperwork, I butter up our um, assistants <laughs> with chocolate and treats and, and nice. say thank you and nice thank you cards. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, no technology. It's just you never know. It's just frustrating. And there isn't really anybody and you just get run in circles or the state testing we just finished here at school. And so it's, you know, it's hilarious when, you know, I'm the person that's putting the, the, the browser on the computers. So I'm the technician, right? But then also when you go to sign in to like administer the test, four roles come up and then I'm actually like delivering the test, like reading it aloud while I'm like watching everybody else's like progress <laughs> on the test too. I'm like, hold on a second. I got to go like help this person with their test. <laughs> so yeah, that's what, you know, you're doing a lot of jobs is when you sign into like SBAC testing and you have four roles that pop up. You've talked about some of the challenges that you've had as an educator in your school, but Across the country, what are the issues right now in rural education that are really struggles for rural teachers or for rural leaders? What are those things that keep them up at night? At uh, the last school board meeting and that I had the, the superintendent was reminding the school board how well Cook City is doing because we're actually accredited, <laughs> but that's only because there's just me and I can take care of every single accreditation. As long as I'm checking every box for me being a one room school, I check every box. I'm the counselor, I'm the librarian. I'm, you know, I'm every grade level and for all subjects. I think we are the only school in Park County, Montana that's accredited at this time because they can't find certified staff to to check that box they want it and so what is the issue most likely the issue is there's not a livable wage to offer those people to do that job to like draw them in and there's not housing the only reason i am here besides the fact that i love it and like i want to be in this community but the only reason that can keep me here to teach at Cook City School is that, you know, my salary is not great for everything that I do, but I am provided quality housing, not just a beat up house that's I'm going to freeze in or, you know, it's a it's a good house and it is walking distance to the school. And that is that makes up and it makes it a professional wage when I am include the housing. And that's what's needed. If you want to have rural educators that are quality educators, you need to offer them a professional wage and make it happen somehow with, you know, if you can make it up with housing, that's, that's a start. Well said. Did you repeat that one more time for the people in the back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Professional, professional teach us, you know, treat us like professionals and pay us like professionals that we are. Um, and it, do it however you can do it. You need needs to find a way. See, that's advocacy work right there. I think you nailed that. So, so I know you've heard this next question before, and I'm going to encourage you to go off the rails. <laughs> what would be like that 
that moment in your teaching career that just stands out, your proudest moment, your aha, this is what it's about. Right. Uh, for the rural here at Cook City, it was it was within my first year of teaching here. Very quickly, there was no script for me to follow. I was, you know, left with very little as to what to do. And I was a new teacher, right? I had only been under an administrator for six months besides before coming here. And uh, it's a Cook City's one-room school. And I quickly realized it was like running my independent business that I owned for so many years and excelled at. If I wanted this school to operate, it would operate really well and I could do basically whatever I wanted to and turn it and shape it into something amazing as long as I was willing to put in the effort. Same thing with my business. Started from scratch, put in effort, had a vision and turned it into something that was award winning. Same thing here. I quickly realized I had the support, uh, you know, after gaining trust with the board members in the community, I had their support. It tested the waters. Uh, you know, I used to be a landscaper and living in Montana. I need to have things that grow, especially if I'm in this, the, the snowiest place in Montana. So I started with the aeroponic system. You can see it in the background there. And that worked. I had the support. And then I was like, hmm, like, I need soil, though. I need to get my hands dirty. So I started researching mountain-worthy greenhouses. I started then realizing I need a compost system. But how do I do that here where there's bears and it's really cold and snowy here all year? And so I, after researching, I presented my ideas to one of the board members and had support. So I started rocking and rolling with that. Basically, my aha moment was I can shape this school into anything as long as I put in the effort, find the funding, and I have the support of the school board and the community. And I and I do. I'm very fortunate. Um, and you know, it's so yeah, could do we could do a lot of fun things here. It's a good gig if you're willing to to put a lot of hours in, but you just pick things that you love, right? I mean, you love your teaching. I love all my teaching. And, uh, you know, there's some stuff that we have to do by the books, but <laughs> most of it, we could be like, Melissa, you were saying is, you know, you have to be, in you have to be innovative to make it work here. And so gotten real innovative, <laughs> but ha having fun along the way. <laughs> Expand on that because it takes me to my the next question that we have, which is, what would you tell somebody that was looking to teach and potentially maybe considering a rural school? What would you tell them to pull them into a rural setting? Yeah, absolutely. They need to look for those rural teaching jobs. They should be sought. You need to be careful, though. You need to do your research. You need to make sure it's a good fit for you, that you understand the community. And there's places where it wouldn't be, you know, potentially a good fit for where I am and and or what it, the things you know that I do. You have to be energized by the community and your parents and your school boards, uh, your you know, and your location. So make sure you're going to be happy to live there. Um, make sure that you don't sell yourself short and that you can live, have a livable wage. Um, 
And, but by gosh, I mean, you make all the impact. It's everything, right? You're not, we're not chasing just state or national initiative after initiative. You see what needs to happen for your local place and community and students and families, and then you do it. And because you're rural, you're tough and you get things done and you find ways to get things done. You make it happen and you just do it. Nobody's paying attention because there's so much else going on. You know, we're, we're, we're doing awesome. And that's the other thing. Like everybody's meeting their needs and exceeding their needs. So it's like, you know, all's good at Cook City. Just let them do their thing. Yeah. I've had three superintendents now and they're just like, let Lara do her thing. You know, <laughs> just, just let her be, just make her happy. And so, and that's basically just supporting me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's awesome. A little bit of support goes a long ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I'm going to close this out by asking you uh, if there's anything else we haven't covered that you'd like our listeners to know. Yes. And it, it stems right from that last bit is that you need to fill your educator's bucket. It, saying thank you, doing so much. Uh, at these, you know, these rural communities, and it doesn't even need to be a rural community. That is the fuel. It's, you know, it's like we said, it's, it's, not, it's not the wages. That's not why we're here. Just recognize what your you know, local educators are, and administrators are doing to make these doors stay open in these places. It's a lot and it and it's just a handful of us it's really just me a superintendent that's three hours away from me a clerk who's further than that and three school board members who have lives of their own and families and multiple jobs to make their ends meet we're doing this together so even if you're not involved in the school in any way they're still part of the community if you want to see kids laughing and running around your streets just just say wow like recognize what you're doing thank you it it's fuels it's fuel it's charges you supercharge it's popeye spinach right mm -hmm. so. <laughs> that is good but i i can't let it end there i'm really sorry i've got to hear more because I'm, your bubble, your bison project is amazing, and that was a really exciting award you won. And I want you to tell our listeners about it. Uh, so, as I mentioned, to be able to meet all the standards of so many different grade levels, the only way to do that is through multidisciplinary units of study that are year long, that are engaging to my to first to me, right, and then it's going to be engaging to the students and it's engaging to the students because it's local. Yeah. So a, a couple of years ago, I, I took a course at the Buffalo ranch in, uh, which is in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone national park. It's just 35 minutes down the road to the West. And they have, it was a, a two older gentlemen taught the course. And as I'm sitting there, for those four days, I was like, this is, it was all about bison, bison, everything. One was a biologist and the other was like a professional storyteller and just lover of bison and knew all the history. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is United States history. 
but through a bison lens. Like, this is how you teach history to, especially to my students. We have bison. There was a bison just yesterday in the the yard straight across from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, And uh, big bulls just come through. They're here year round. And we drive into the park, you know, just 30 minutes into the Lamar. We are there on Thursday with the students and this gentleman who taught that course, Jim Gary. And uh, he spent the day with us in the park and there's this bison everywhere. There must've been a thousand that we saw in just one view and all the babies are on the landscape. So the bison lens project is, yes, it's US history, but it's all focused on the bison's history. It goes all the way back to 13,000 years ago to the Anzic site, which is in Park County, Montana. It's just to the north of us. It's the oldest human remains in North America were found there. And these are from Clovis people. They were hunting gigantic bison, the latifrons that were, you know, nine feet between their horns and massive tools and all this. And then it goes through all the changes, you know, so you have your geology and you have, you know, you have just changes of the landscape to what we come to today to gosh, just, uh, we did, um, ecology. The bison is so connected. We had the most perfect moment in Yellowstone park. We're doing a uh, at the local post office is our gallery of all the students' artwork. And we're putting up a timeline that's going to be about like, end up being about 20 feet around. And it's going to go from 13,000 years ago to the present and all the key moments of bison history, but like our history, human history and U.S. history. And the final one was one of my eighth graders. She learned about the ecology, the importance of the bison they eat the grass on the landscape and they poop. Those bison patties make great homes for insects. The northern flicker woodpecker uh, loves to eat the insects along the edge of the meadow at the forest where the forest meets the meadow. And so she has a flicker and that's in a cavity. And there's another tree cavity that a flicker's made. And those flickers are there because those insects are there. But Flying squirrels, flying squirrels only use flicker cavities because they're just the right size to have a nest, but they're super particular. They sleep in one and then they use the other one to poop. And so the, then there's a dung beetle who is, has evolved just to use uh, flying squirrel poop in these cavities. And so that's just one example of the ecology. You remove that bison, all those other things trickle apart. They're a keystone species. So we were in Yellowstone Park on Thursday with Jim Gary, who like kind of spurred this whole thing with his class that I took from him. And we went for this a little walk. And what did we come across? We were right on the edge of a meadow. There's bison poop all around us. And I saw flicker. <laughs> fly to a dead aspen tree. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no way. We worked our way around and there was that flicker digging out a cavity right at the edge of a meadow with like bison poop all on the foreground. It was like the perfect teaching circle moment. And we've had a bunch of other ones like that this year with our bison project and our field trips. Um, I mean, even that eighth grader was speechless. (laughs) (laughs) she was just like couldn't believe this was happening her picture had come to life it was pretty awesome 
What's well, a big idea? Is that people have this mindset that rural rural communities are, are deficit models, and they're not. When you can recognize those local assets, amazing things can happen. Yeah, and all that knowledge. If you engage those students in one thing, it's going to transfer to others, and so it. That ecology, like I was talking to a student who's, you know, going to be moving into a different ecosystem when she graduates from here. And it's, and she's been here for two years and she was telling me she's learned so much about wildlife in those two years she's, that she's been here, which, you know, melted my heart, of course. But also I told her, you're going to take that same knowledge. You're going to find the bird that is the flicker in a different ecosystem. I don't care if you go to South America or, you know, to anywhere it's it it's gonna you know some rainforest there's gonna be similarities and that's what you want you want that engagement so it sticks and then it transfers to something else and we can do that because we know our students so well and we can connect them to things so no definitely not a deficit model if anything it is the model to turn towards uh we need to know our students yeah we have to engage them and the assets where we live for sure. Absolutely. Well, Making use of it. Laura, thanks for taking the time to spend it with us today. I know it's late where you are. So really appreciate the conversation. Oh, thanks for uh, listening. I, obviously, you can tell I, I don't get to talk to too many people <laughs> about the educators world. So it's nice to have you in the classroom with me. It's You should come and visit. I would love to. I have to fight the snow. I I think I just heard an invitation. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to connect. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you both. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you to Trainual for sponsoring The Rural Scoop. Trainual is the number one software for process documentation and employee manuals. It puts everything into one simple, searchable system that is easy to navigate, is clearly organized, and is simple to access. It's perfect for schools and even entire school systems. If you're using something like a Binder or a Google Doc, Trainual offers a better way. You can design your training manual to function as a learning module and assign different material to groups like classified staff or certified teachers, departments, or even committees. Trainual can also help your continuation plans as well. For example, your chemistry teacher can log how they've organized the storage room, making it easier for the next person who takes that job. Trainual makes your employee handbook easy to delegate, easy to consume, and easy to search, and just, well, overall easier to run your school. Listeners of The Rural Scoop get 10% off their first 12 months by using offer code RURALSCOOP. When you sign up for your free trial, just enter Rural Scoop one word, as a promo code, and it'll automatically apply. Just go to trainual.com to get started. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. And be sure to follow on Twitter at Dr. Sadorf. That's D-R underscore S-A-D-O-R-F so that you never miss a new release. You can also check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Production support for The Rural Scoop is provided by Chattanooga Podcast Studios. Find out more at ChattanoogaPodcastStudios.com. 
See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.